Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Duke, and I'm joined today by a very familiar guest. He doesn't need much of an introduction for me or for most of our listeners. Uh, Stefan Molyneux has had a distinguished and controversial, all the more distinguished, because it's controversial to exactly the right people, the people who should be bothered. Uh, uh, he is a writer, he is a philosopher, he is a, a very talented presenter of ideas, he's an orator, uh, he is a humanist and a philosopher, he, the list goes on and on and on. So uh, if, you have, if you don't know who Stefan Molyneux is, stick your head out of the sand and check him out on anywhere you can find him, and we've got some of his stuff at our Freedom Project site as well. Uh, and I think if you don't know who Stefan is, everybody else who does, I think after this conversation, you're going to want to know a lot more about what uh, Stefan thinks about a lot of things. The t- sorry, Duke, I just, I didn't quite catch humble in that, <laughs> in that list of superlatives. So we're doing the yeah, screw tape letters. Freedomain.com. It's freedomain.com if people want to check yeah. it out. But sorry, go ahead. And we're going to talk about the screw tape letters today. So the seven deadly sins and the virtues, it's going to be all on. We'll get to humility at some point, I'm sure. Uh, but my, my opening s- statement about the, uh, the screw tape letters, I'm going to throw it at you. And then you get started. We'll go back and forth. Is that, my God, it's prescient, isn't it? I mean, that way back in the early 1940s, Lewis wrote this as a series of talks. He, did, he didn't sit, meet, sit down and plan to write this out in book form. He was just trying to buck up a very downtrodden uh, British public while the Blitz was happening, right? So this was, this was basically Christian apologetics with a little flair of a kind of a neat narrative twist to bolster the, seer, uh, the, 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 bolster the spirits of a country that was really under withering attack. And I, I think you could make the argument, there's no bombs falling, at least not actual bombs falling, but you could make the argument that Amer- the American people and the American experiment are very much at the crossroads as, as the, the, the UK was in 1941. And uh, the, the letters and what Lewis has to say and the things he warned us that were coming down the road, he was pretty right on, almost prophetic, you might say. It is a very powerful book, and I had a very oddly personal introduction to it. I never particularly warmed to C.S. Lewis as a novelist, but I think as a nonfiction writer, he's about as good as they come. So without sort of naming names, Duke, I had a, a person in my life who was pretty corrupt, and I was still young and tender enough to believe that uh, this was a phase, that it was uh, adolescent, as the phrase in C.S. Lewis' book goes. And after knowing this man for several years, he gave me one book, and one book only, the entire time that I knew him. And he had a strange intensity in the providing of this book to me. I guess it's the same way that I hand copies of Plato or Aristotle. Please, you've got to read this. And he never suggested another book. He never, he was not a Christian. And this book was the Screwtape Letters. And everybody has a voice that they read books in. Like if you're in a really, really quiet room and you're reading silently to yourself, you can hear the voice. Mine, of course, has a vaguely fruity pan-colonial accent. But I read this book and it was one of the only books I ever read with somebody else's voice in my head. And it was his voice. And it was, of course, when I look back on it, he was warning me about himself. And what an oddly selfless thing to do. Because he then railed against it when I eventually did break associations with him because he was unreformable. But it was almost like as a man who's being pulled out under by sharks, he hands me a life raft and, a life raft and, and sort of motions me to safety. So I just wanted to point out that I have a very 
oddly deep connection to this book. And it's one of these strange situations in my life. I mean, I've taken on a number of intellectual and personal and social risks, the, the likes of which, you know, fell half a forest, it seems, for, for other people. And I've always sort of felt like the, uh, the hitman in, uh, in the Tarantino uh, movie where you know he's he just strays of bullets and he's just and they all just go outline around him and I think this sense of protection that I felt was engendered to some degree by this corrupt person giving me this book, me reading it and recognizing that sometimes people will through an extremity protect you from themselves against almost their own wishes. So I just wanted to point out why uh, I, I, I'm going to be quite intense about mm. this book, because it has a very deep connection to me in, in my history. You know, that is really an interesting observation. Uh, I just got done teaching Dr. Faustus, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, the Faust story to my sophomores at the university. And I was thinking about the exact same thing you just mentioned in a different context. There's a moment where after the, the great magician summons up the devil, summons up Mephistopheles to be his personal attendant, sells his soul to the devil. And right before they sign the contract, Mephistopheles says to Faustus, Faustus, leave these vain desires that, that, that bring a terror to my fainting soul. Don't do this. And, and it's one of the most interesting moments of the play where this jaded, world-weary demon says to him, I've seen some bad times in my life, but dude, don't do this. And Faustus laughs right in his face and, and says, how do you expect me to take you seriously? You're in hell, are you? Walking, flying through the air. I just don't get it. And the devil looks at him and says, and again, one of those moments where the devil, for some reason, pulls that mask aside, and Mephistopheles says to him, I do not realize that I beheld the face of God. Do you not think I, I, I experienced 10,000 hells in being denied everlasting bliss? Stop this, Faustus. And he doesn't, at which point the devil puts the mask back on, and it just ineluctably drags him to his doom over the next, the rest of the book. And very similar. Uh, what do we make of this? What do we make of this, um, this possibility of evil? Marlowe recognized it 400 years ago, this possible of the face of evil to be monitory, almost in a generous way sometimes. Well, the devil is as trapped by temptation as the sinner is, because if there was no receptivity to temptation, the devil could be liberated from his constant task. And it strikes me that this is the story of the modern world, in fact, the current world. We were just talking about this before the show started, Duke, but what is going on in America in particular in this lead up to the election? Well, you have the radical anarchists, the, the communists, the, the hardcore socialists and so on. I mean, they're burning down cities. They are attacking people. They are shooting people. They are trying to destroy people's lives. They are wishing death upon the president. And they really couldn't be more clear. If you go left, this is what you're going to get. Now, there's all this stuff in history we know. You know, largely leftist governments killed like 100 million people in the 20th century outside of war, just like killing their own citizens. We have all of that. We got the French Revolution. We got the Russian Revolution. We got the Italian fascists. You got the National Socialists in Germany. There's a whole laundry list of fatalities that arise out of these collectivist ideologies. But just in case, just in case you've completely ignored history, we're going to unroll that tapestry in a limited way in the here and now. We're going to show you like a documentary come to life in vivid face blazing 3D. This is what happens if you go collectivist, if you surrender to hatred, which is really what 
the left is to a large degree all about these days because they believe that every single disparity in outcome is the result of theft and exploitation and, and horror and, and grossness and vileness and evil and so on. And so because there inevitably will be, I mean, it's like saying if everybody who is different in height has stolen the height from someone else, the tall guy has stolen the height from the short guy and, and, and Brad Pitt stole hair from you and I, you know, this, if you have this belief that all differences arise from evil and exploitation, since society can never eradicate differences, you can never eradicate fear, loathing, and hatred. And so right now, the devils that are massing on the horizon, and in fact, in the antechambers and perhaps the Oval Office of America, are very, very clearly saying, the mask is off. This is what you get. This is what you're going to get. And I, it, it seems to me, I at least when the guy said, gave me the book, screw tape letters i read it and i was like oh that's kind of a warning now isn't but and that's a question what comes up to the election right i mean are people going to see when the mask is off and the devil is saying hey this is what you're going to get we're not kidding around here we're not talking about things being nice we're not talking about things being positive we're talking about burning down cities and killing people and you know we've had a three and a half plus year attempted coup on the u.s president through a wide variety of legal and other mechanistic ne uh, means it's pretty clear Mask is off. The devil's saying, you can't say you weren't warned. You can't say you didn't know. You can't say it wasn't completely obvious. You know, and uh, I guess all we can do is hope that people uh, eyes open. <laughs> Look the, at the flames. That's the, what's coming. The three stories we've laid out here, your personal experience, my experience with that 400 year old book and what's going on in the country makes the same point, as does the screw tape letters. And that point is, is that at some point, when you are in the process of losing yourself by surrendering to evil, evil isn't, A, tr feels comfortable enough it can tell you what it is, number one. And number two, maybe even evil itself on some level is trying to warn you that you have one last chance, right? That um, you said it before, the devil, such as he is, he, he's capable of tempting, but he's also, by definition, he's suffering, right? I mean, he's, he, to be in hell is not to be in his, we have this, this mythological image of the devil, whatever the devil might be, in hell, enjoying himself, right? He's got a throne and he's, well, he's laughing at the suffering of others. Well, hell was made first and foremost for him, as Mephistopheles pointed out to um, Faustus. I, you, just because I'm not there, you think? that my, I'm not, te uh, this is not my, my nature now, that my entire world is subsumed by the torment of what I have chosen. And, and so there is something humanizing about that, and, and humanizing in the sense that a war, a, a war worry Mephistopheles or a, a, a charlatan who's led you so far in your, in your personal life down a certain road gives you one last chance to see it. Uh, did, like I would ask you with regards to that, did, so you saw it right away when you were reading the book. You you recognized that he was exposing himself to you. So how did uh, uh, was there an immediate reaction, or was it down the road that you finally severed course with him? No, because I um, I mean if uh, I have I have many flaws and excessive optimism is probably one of the greatest. And so for me, I was like, oh, he wants me to save him. <laughs> You know, doo -doo -doo -doo. <laughs> yeah, to put on my uh, my helmet and my white knight armor and I'm going to ride in on a horse and I'm going to bring him truth, reason, evidence and an appeal to conscience and empathy and virtue and all that kind of stuff. And uh, because I was close to the person and it was important to me, I uh, spent uh, some time, quite some time, which, you know, I don't regret because you really have to ex extend and expend full efforts in order to avoid regret. Regret, I think, is one of the greatest problems 
in um, in the world and in people's conscience. And C.S. Lewis talks about it quite extensively in the book. So I wanted to make sure, like I wanted to try my very best so that then if I end up walking away, I'm not sitting there thinking, hmm, should have done more. You know, you, you don't want to be uh, Oscar Schindler, like at the end of the movie or the end of the story or the end of the reality saying, oh, if I just sold this watch, I could have, like, you don't want to be that person who's like, Ah, if I if I had extended effort and, and when you extend maximum effort to help people and you get sort of ignored or scarred in return, then you walk away without looking back. And the looking back is like the fish hook that keeps you in the past and keeps you from the future. So, no, it took some time. I expended a good deal of effort, as I did from a lot of the people with a lot of the people in my youth who fall into this C.S. Lewis categories in almost chillingly accurate manners. I mean, I, he, he draws these outlines of bodies and it's like my friends could just perfectly fit <laughs> from my youth into those because I came from a very sort of atheistic, amoral, secular, materialistic, sensual based uh, you know, I mean, I, I never got that far. I was somewhere between, you know, Ollie Asher, uh, Ollie Asher and, and Roger Stone. But there was always this desire to help people and to try and limit the damage that corruption could do. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what it gave me was was two things. Number one, there is a time where expending more effort becomes destructive to yourself and doesn't help another. And that the desire to help corrupt people and save them is part of the quicksand that can pull you in. That's number one. And number two is that it genuinely can be too late for people in any practical sense. Now, I mean that outside of the Christian context, because within the Christian context, of course, there is always the possibility of redemption. But in my experience for non-Christians, for non-spiritual, for, or, you know, I would say non-philosophical people, for the mere mammals among us, there's a sort of clever, cunning mammals, there is a time of too late and all they can do is serve as a warning to others. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think it actually, Christianity accounts for that too. And a couple of quick examples you've got in Dr. Faustus, the play I was mentioning. Uh, Faustus, all he has to do is sincerely repent. The good angel hovers over him at the end and says, There's, Faustus, you've got to call on God. I, he's given me a vial of precious grace, but you have to make the move. He's lived a life of such wickedness by choice. He can't just turn it off. And so he's trying to, as the devils are dragging him to hell, he's trying to scream the name of God, and all that comes out is Mephistopheles. And in Dante's Great Inferno, as you know, uh, Dante talks about how there are some souls at the lowest levels of hell in which the bodies are still walking around on earth. And he makes the argument, Dante, that there are some souls that have given into evil so thoroughly that they are frozen. They can't repent anymore. And so for those souls, they, it's as if the bottom drops out, the soul falls all the way down to the bottom level of hell, where fittingly, they're buried beneath the ice. They're drowned beneath the ice, these frozen souls. And some demon walks the body around until its normal date of death comes. And uh, whenever I hear that, I w read that, I think of that, those pictures of Hitler in the bunker, you know, when he was drugged up at the end of his life. And I it just see, he doesn't look like he's there. He looks like the eyes are empty and empty and vacant. It always reminds me of that scene in, in Dante that maybe at this point that something else is controlling him and the, the soul has already left the body. But for those of you who don't know, and, and we're, we're talking here primarily about the Screwtape Letters, just real quick, if you don't know the story, it's a short read. It's not a very long book, but it, it's a very simple premise. You've got a series of letters written back and forth between a senior devil, a much older, wiser devil, or I should, we should say older, wickeder devil, Screwtape, who is giving advice to his young nephew, Wormwood, 
about the best ways to destroy a human soul. Young Wormwood has just been assigned his first human being. He's a young man in his late teens, early 20s. And he is, uh, this is, this is Wor uh, Wormwood's first attempt. So they have a lot of conversations back and forth. And you, you never hear Wormwood speak. It's constantly screw tape reading the letters. So you get what Wormwood's writing through the recounting of it through screw tape's lecturing. So it's basically a monologue, a monologue by screw tape about the way to destroy human lives. And it covers everything from sex to education. It covers everything from uh, the seven deadly sins, as we mentioned before, to the, the danger of modern postmodern thought. And so it's very deep, but it's very easy and readable. It is. Uh, the epistolary format is something that is little used these days, but it is very powerful. And I, it's something, a literary device that should be used more, I think, especially now that people are back to writing letters through email. But it is something that is, is quite powerful. And uh, we're going to do, I guess, a little bit of jumping around in, in the story. But a couple of quotes here that I thought were just amazing. So he says, uh, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Ooh, because what does the devil say as a whole? So the devil, and you can see this all over in the Hollywood, because devil in Hollywood, not exactly antonyms these days. What does the devil say? The devil says, your temptation shall arise in a great column of lava fire, and I shall stand above you with giant bat wings, and I will reach down with fiery claws to grab at your very soul while offering... Kim Kardashian in the other hand, whatever it is that, that's going to tempt someone, right? So everyone thinks that there's this big, dramatic, amazing, powerful moment that's going to be blindingly clear to you as to how you're going to lose your integrity, how you're going to lose your soul, how you're going to violate your conscience, perhaps irreparably. And that's not how it works. It's like saying to a smoker, there will be one cigarette that you will pull out of the cigarette box, and lo, it shall be a coffin nail, and if you smoke that cigarette, that will be the one that kills you. It's like, no, that's not, that's not how smoking kills you. Smoking kills you with the tiny little bit of narcissistic avoidance of displeasure with your constant, you know, little bit here and there. It's this, it's this gradualism, and the gradualism is the most powerful thing. How do we gain weight? We gain weight gradually. How do we die of smoking? We die of smoking tiny little bit, 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 bit. How do we become unhealthy you know how do we lose our muscle mass just a little bit you know at a time and this gradualism is the real devil and all of these people who portray this moment of incredibly powerful temptation that is going to occur are misleading people because the other quote i think that complements this where they say uh, screw tape says it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their heads. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Keeping things out of the head, right? Why does the smoker keep smoking? Because he does not think about breathing through a hole in his throat and coughing and emphysema and lung cancer and his weeping children and all that kind of stuff, right? Keeping things out of your mind, the distraction, the dissociation, the tiny little upsets and frustrations that characterize a life that's sanded away to nothing. That's the real devil. The real devil is attrition. It's not immediate fiery temptation. 
Yeah, the first of those two examples comes exactly. The young, the young man that Wormwood's in charge of has just found out that World War II has been launched, right? It's war. And being a young man of a certain age, he knows that eventually he very well may be drafted, very well may, may be sent to the killing fields. And the de- Wormwood is ecstatic, right? Oh, you should see, he didn't sleep all night, Uncle. All night long, Uncle, he fret and flipped and turned in his bed, sweat, sweat through the sheets because he knew he might be dead in a few months or years. And at that point, Screwtape kind of rips into him and says, you fool, you have, you have made the first mistake, Wormwood says. You've become drunk on human misery, but you've made a mistake. Don't you realize, the devil says, when men go to war, they tend to go prepared to die. There are very few men who go into the battle of the psalm not at peace with their maker, whoever their maker might be. You would be a fool if you were a religious man to go into a battlefield not prepared. We don't, that's bad for us, right? We want them to die in old age homes with nurses telling them that they're going to live forever, with doctors lying to them that they're going to live forever. They got plenty of time to repent. No, he says, the the purpose is to get a soul to hell. And if you send a soul to a place where it knows it's going to die, that's hard. We, he said cards, playing cards, are good enough to get a man to hell. And sometimes more efficient because it seems like such a little thing that becomes an obsession, right? That leads you to gambling where you end up losing your health. Such a gradual thing, like you said. And so there's a deep understanding, I think, there. That in, uh, what amazes me about Lewis uh, is that, you know, uh, I, once he, I, I don't know if it changed when he became a Christian or not, right? We know that all throughout his young year, lives, during his experience in World War I, he didn't believe. In fact, it wouldn't have been officially until about 1931, 10 years before he wrote the Screwtape Letters, and a long time away from World War I. It was 1931 or so where he finally turned, Tolkien had worked on him. He had finally turned and embraced Christianity. Uh, and, and I don't know if the embracing of Christianity deepened his understanding of human nature, because it certainly does seem to have changed him in ways. Uh, his understanding of human motivations is pretty powerful. And the second one that you mentioned there, mentioned there and, and remind me again, the, the, just give me the, 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 the tag for the second quote you gave, was uh, it just ran out of my head. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, let me just, I, I went to my next one. Um, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their heads. Yes. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. I just wanted to comment on how very, how very insightful that is about the modern left, right? We ask ourselves, how can the left think those things? How can the left be so blind to history when it comes to socialism? How can the progressive, largely atheist left, how could they not recognize that in fighting fascism, as they say they're doing, they're behaving fascism? And I think this is exactly what Lewis was talking about. Uh, the best, our best work is to keep them from thinking. The, people think that we devils are sitting on people's shoulders, whispering in their ears, telling them what to do. That's not it. Our job is to, is to try to encourage them to think of nothing to not get perplexed about any kind of emotional or intellectual or ethical dilemmas. Let them just believe all is well. Let them believe that they're good no matter, as long as they think their ideas are good, that they're justified in doing anything to pursue those ideas. Well, you know, one of the uh, things I got in trouble for, one of the many things I got in trouble for in social media, and one of my biggest tweets ever was about Taylor Swift. (laughs) And it was, you know, when she was turning 30, I wrote a tweet and uh, I said, um, yeah, I hope she thinks about having kids. Looks like she'd be a fun mom because, you know, by the time she's 30, 90 percent of her eggs are dead. 
you know, it's a biological fact. I put the sources in when people ask. It's not controversial within science. But here's what it does, right? It takes people think they've got this infinite accordion of time. And what this does is squishes it right down to, to two tiny bookends together and gives you a sense of the mortality of your reproduction and the mortality of your life always co-joined, right? Because, of course, one of the ways that the devils in society work is to say to women, have fun, travel, start a career, have, you know, lots of boyfriends and live like a man. And even Sheryl Sandberg was talking about that kind of stuff. And, you know, all, all that people who are a little bit more sensible here is waste your fertility years in useless affairs, have low standards for who you uh, date, uh, destroy your capacity for pair bonding and end up washed up in your mid thirties on a broken shore of broken people trying to knit together a family from the shards of leftovers. And that's kind of, an, so I put that out. And of course, uh, women and some are kind of freaked out because what it does is it gives you the mortality panic. Because when you start to think about babies, you start to think about, oh, you know, like I look at my daughter and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're here because I won't be. <laughs> right? That's that's why you're here, because I'm not going to be here. And uh, parenting is, of course, all about recognizing your own mortality because, uh, you know, they, they bring in the new products because the old products quickly become obsolete and get retired <laughs> to the six feet dirt nap. And so this sense of reminding people of the passage of time, reminding people not to strip mine male desire for female vanity and trinkets and trips to Barbados and free dinners and all. It's a terrible way to use the beauty of women and the love of men. And for the same way for men, uh, you know, stop chasing women who just have, you know, cannon fires of fertility markers uh, uh, launching themselves at men's groins. That's just not a good way to live life. And reminding people of mortality is important. And when you look at Hollywood, you look at TV and so on, I've yet ever to see a story about a woman who wastes her youth and then ends up as an old maid, lonely, isolated, bitter, depressed, angry, heartbroken, and then becomes the sort of post-50 invisible female, which generally happens if you don't knit together a family from the hormones of your youth. That doesn't exist. All you just see is, uh, oh, a woman, she, she broke up with her husband in her 40s and she ended up having a wonderful affair with a rock-abbed sculptor down in Boho Town or something like that. And it's just not how reality works. But you've got to keep that stuff invisible so you can keep people on that slippery slope of making terrible decisions and wrecking their lives by just don't show the bodies at the bottom of that slippery slope and, and all is well. At one point, Screwtape says to Wormwood, do you not realize, Wormwood, that if you are lucky and smart you will be able to get a man to waste away his whole life doing nothing important, nothing that he wanted to do, idling away his time on trifles, right? Caught up, and that's what we love, he says. We don't want, we don't want and we don't need spectacular wickedness. What we need is gradual, we, we just, we, that gradual calcifying of the soul that comes from daily, hourly compromise not to do the better thing, not to do the more important thing, not to do the more ethical thing. That slow growing calcification. And it really is the thing, the thing that always amazes me about the devil in screw tape, he's always got to slow his nephew down. Slow your roll, he says. You know, I know what you're thinking, Wormwood, that with war comes killing and people's heads blown off and lots of rape if one side wins. These things, I get why they excite you. They're like wine to you, intoxicating. He said, but, 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 what good are they to us 
Wormwood if our soldiers, our patients, go to those places knowing that these things could happen, right? It's all about preparedness and it's all about forethought. And so, you know, we never do, we never do, we never do hear God's perspective because the devils won't tell us. But what I always find interesting about the screw tape letters in telling us the way, this is what's so unique about the, the, the um, premise that Lewis adopts, is that you learn much about God from him, right? In fact, you learn things from screw tape about the devil that you could never learn studying scripture or trying to understand the good. The psychology of evil, I'm not sure anybody outside of maybe a Dante did it better. And, you know, so, so difficult were these to write. As he kept writing them, Lewis, right, because they were popular, he, he made a point. In order to do what I did in the screw tape letters, I had to think, I had to open the door to evil. I had to open myself to thinking and pondering and feeling what a devil would feel. And by the end of it, he had to quit, he said. He, there were, people were begging him to write more, do a sequel. But he said he couldn't because I began to feel the devil at my elbow when I wrote them. That by opening myself up to the mindset of negation, of anti-good, right? Uh, that just opening myself up for intellectual purposes sort of imperiled the rest of me. And it is explicitly in the book, no, almost explicitly, individualism versus collectivism. There's a great passage where he says, look, that the devil expands and absorbs, takes everything, everyone into himself and subjugates and eliminates them. Whereas God wants everyone to think for themselves, which is why he doesn't place himself explicitly in front of people and give them like scrolling teleprompter orders, because well, there's no virtue if you're just ordering people around. And, you know, of course, I'm not trying to put myself in any kind of similar category, but I've had a policy because, as you know, maybe your listeners don't for like 15 years, I've been doing this call in show. I've had thousands and thousands of conversations with people who are facing particular challenges in their life, and I try to give them philosophical principles that can help them uh, out of their um, situation. And some of these situations are extraordinarily dire. Uh, in fact, one guy got, got arrested, actually, during the, <laughs> during the show. But anyway, so I've always had a policy, which is uh, people say, well, what should I do? It's like, I, I can't, I'm not going to tell you. Because for me to shoulder aside whatever soul absence has had you drift into this disaster realm for me to shoulder aside that absence and replace it with my commandments is not to enhance your free will in any way shape or form and there has to be the humility of saying i don't know what you should do because i'm a different person i do know that there are certain principles that i think are wise and and valuable to follow but i with one exception over 15 years with a guy who was literally drinking himself to death um i have never ever told anyone uh, what to do and that re reading that to me uh, was a, a, a real reminder of when you, the devil is collectivist in nature, wants to subsume individual identity to generalized satanic will, and he rails against and, and fundamentally can't comprehend. And I, I love the comedy in the, um, in the book. It, it, it is actually a darkly funny book. First of all, uh, it's not really a spoiler, I suppose, but any book where a letter has to be broken off because somebody has gotten so angry they've accidentally turned into a caterpillar kafka style that is an okay book in my book uh and um uh, another uh, there's just lovely little uh, funny bits about all of this kind of stuff one being well you know we've we've tried now for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to produce a virtue we're expecting progress hourly but it hasn't quite happened yet and this like the soviet satanic production of uh, virtue that's only possible in a free market, free will environment to me is, is quite 
delicious. And so to me, this collectivism, because what do they, they offer you a respite. Like what does is, what is the collectivist want to offer, whether it's fascist, nationalist, socialist, um, communist, whatever. What do they say? They say, hey, you know, your conscience, it's a real burden, right? It's a, it's a real hassle having this conscience, having to make all these individual decisions, having all this responsibility. Ugh, it's horrible. You're like Atlas groaning around with an ever-expanding globe on your shoulders. It's going to break your knees. We're going to take that burden away from you. If you, all you have to do, man, just subsume your willpower, your decision-making capacity to, we can call it obedience, conformity, conformity to whatever principles we're putting forward. And we, we'll take it on for you, man. We will take on that burden for you. You're free of that burden. Now, of course, Christianity and philosophy says, nope, you can't do that any more than somebody else can digest your dinner for you. They can't take your conscience. But that's the great offer. And that's talked about quite repeatedly that you can just shrug off this burden of individual responsibility by dissolving yourself into the collective and, ooh, things are going to be great. And it's like, yeah, you know, the biggest collective in the world is just a whole carpet of lemmings going Thelma and Louise style off a cliff. Yeah, you, those two, again, passages I want to stop down for a second. I can see it now. You and I have done so many talks together. And because of my interests, you're, I mean, you're, you're very broad-minded. You talk to people with all sorts of different backgrounds. You relate to them. Uh, one of mine happens to be, you know, religion, Christianity. So we've talked a lot about that. And I can see the gutter snipe trolls now. Well, two of my favorite guys talking about fairy tales. The gutter snipe trolls, right? <laughs> uh, way to go, guys. I watched 15 minutes. God doesn't exist. There's the answer, right? There is no God. Children's play. And they walk away. Right? Not that we have to pay any attention to them. But I want to take the two quotes that you just gave us. And I want to ask them to you in a philosophical sense. The first quote you talked about was how the devil lays his cards, screw tape lays his cards on the table. And in so doing, to teach his young nephew, he doesn't just... Tell that Wormwood what we devils are about. He, by definition, explains God. And it's the kind of definition that I think answers a lot of the, the, the sophomore and college kids who've had a little H.L. Mencken and think they're expert atheists now, that kind of glib rejection of God because spaghetti fly, fly like, fl when did flying spaghetti monster become an articulate answer to the problem of God or no God? But there's that one moment you brought up where he says, you know, the dirty truth is that we are hungry and would be filled. We see human beings as food. We want to suck in their life into our own. We want to collectivize them. It's like the Borg, right? We want to swallow their identity, expand our identity by swallowing theirs. You also must recognize, Wormwood, that God, that the enemy, never calls him God, the enemy, he, he is full and wants to give out. He wants to turn them into sons and daughters who ultimately can become something even higher. That where we want to suck out, suck in, he wants to give out. It's true, Wormwood, about him, right? That he, he has no appreciation, the devil says, for his status as God. He wants to take these hairy bipeds, right, and elevate them to the level of his own. And it's all done by allowing him, asking the subject to hand him the free will back so he could make them freer. Now, that's a really remarkable argument to a very long series of, of non sequitur attacks on people who believe in God, right? So, well, well, God knows all these. God's omniscient. God knows all this. You can't have any free will because he knows this, right? This idea that God couldn't possibly know without 
ma uh, managing or micromanaging a, a particular incident. But what he says there is important, that God ultimately wants our obedience. He wants us not to be forced to follow him. He wants us to choose him so that by choosing him, uh, giving us back the gift of free will that he gave us, he can raise us to higher places. Now, from a all your philosophical background, and I know that you, uh, you know, earlier in your career, you, 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 you have made really cogent arguments, arguing to, in, in skeptical ways about God. What would you say, from a philosophical perspective, about the, arg the, the, the negative argument you get in explaining what we are, we get to learn about God? Did, how, is it compelling to you when you read the screw tape letters? Oh, man. How, how much time do we have here to, to my theological wrestling these days? Um, okay, so very, very briefly. I'll keep it brief, and we could probably do a whole other show about where I am theologically, if your audience and yourselves have interest in it. But right now, Christianity versus atheism boils down to this. Atheism says smoking is good for you. That's the science. Christianity says God says don't smoke. That's where the choice is. You say, oh, that's just a fairy tale, so I'm going to smoke, and then you die. Now, you could say, okay, well, the Christians accept God's argument that smoking is bad for you, so they don't smoke, and they stay healthy. Because the false dichotomy is that the atheists have some kind of answer to the question of ethics and virtue and truth and conscience. They don't. They have answers about the material universe which is really the least important aspect outside of satisfying our bare material needs. It's the least important aspect of our existence because we share it with the, excuse me, I was going to swear. We share it with the freaking paramecium. We share it with the trilobite. We share it with the airborne bacteria. Oh, I need to ingest things in order to poop things in order to continue my heart beating. Ooh, good job. And he talks about this. I want to get to this phrase uh, or this passage he's got about the amphibian nature of humanity, which is about as beautifully expressed uh, soul-body dichotomy that I've ever read. So the atheists say, okay, well, so there's no God. And I had this conversation with Dennis Prager years ago and didn't take it as seriously as I should. I do now. Okay, so where does morality come from? Is there such a thing as a conscience? What is virtue? What is the value of truth? Outside of, hey, truth allows us to build a more efficient nuclear bomb. Truth allows us to build a great computer. Hey, that's all valuable stuff, but it has nothing to do with ethics, nothing to do with virtue. The one thing that differentiates us from everything else in creation is that we have a conscience and we have the capacity to abstract virtue. Now, I say this with particular bitterness and vitriol, but, but not any anger. Right? I say this because I accepted that Christianity solved the problem of ethics in a way that philosophically could be argued against strongly. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit down. I remember this very clearly. This was in 2007. Oh, boy, that's uh, old enough now that it's, uh, it's starting to get uh, wobbly, a wobbly voice and, and chest hair. And I sat down at a table and I said, I'm not going to get up until I've got a philosophical, rational, secular answer to the question of ethics. And I worked very, very hard. Took a long time. I wrote a whole book. I toured with it. I made speeches to atheists. I uh, had call-in shows endlessly devoted to the topic. I made endless presentations. I really, really worked hard to bring universally preferable behavior, a rational proof of secular ethics, thinking that I was going to bring this gift, this labor to atheists, and they were going to be like, oh, I've been dying of thirst in the desert. You finally have some water. Glug, glug, glug. Like, that's going to be my, 
uh, reception. And I didn't want them to say good for you. I just wanted to, them to say good for atheism, like you've cracked the code of, of uh, the E equals MC squared of secular ethics. And boy, <laughs> what, what do you think happened? Uh, just just spoiler. <laughs> what do you think happened? Well, uh, they, they hated it in, in general. They fought against it. They just, And they didn't argue against it. They didn't say, ooh, you know, here's the logical flaws and so on. Uh, it was just, you know, oh, it's pedestrian. Oh, it's adolescent. Oh, it's unsophisticated. Oh, it's how, how, like all of this just sophist, multi-syllable diarrhea that passes for uh, something you can build a house out of. And that to me was like, okay, so what are the atheists really all about? Well, the atheists are really all about not having the responsibility of the conscience. Now, atheism has its value, I believe. It's good to be skeptical and it's good to think for yourself. And I'm not saying Christians don't as a whole, but I think that has value because the faith untested, you know, it's like saying this is a really strong bridge. Hey, don't step on it, man. Don't step on it, whatever you do. And you got to jump up and down on the bridge and see what holds. And I jumped up and down on sort of modern secular atheism. And all of that eye rolling stuff that came out of the televangelists with the big hair and the lapels in the 80s in, in on American television, about secular humanism, you know, that kind of stuff. And it, it was all like, oh, you know what? They, they've actually, those bouffant haired guys, they kind of got a point in that there is a decay back to the mere mammalian, Nietzschean will to power, seek to grab resources, shoulder people aside, lie to get ahead. You know, once you pull out, you know, the, the, the thumb in the dike of, of an articulation of moral values, man, oof, you know, things get, get pretty bad. So you could, from, to the atheists out there, I say, okay, what is your answer to the question of morality, and you know, Sam Harris has his answers, which is you know, like you can, not getting cholera is better than getting cholera. It's like, oh wow, yeah, that's really <laughs> quite a moral revolution. And uh, so, uh, Richard Dawkins has his answers, uh, which is you know, around this mealy-mouthed, vaguely altruistic, collectivist, like your own gene stuff, and none of it compels, none of it motivates, and it simply distracts people from that giant. Whole. I would respect atheism enormously if they said, okay, no Christianity, fine, but we got this huge, giant, gaping hole called no ethics, no virtue, no morality, no conscience. Because that's what Christianity was providing to the West, and it provided it in such a powerful way that the West developed freedom of speech, the, 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 the West eliminated slavery, not just from the West, but around the world, which is now creeping back, mostly in non-Western countries, and massive pro... The, Christian, the, the Christianity nurtured, although there were some attacks, it nurtured science forward through the Enlightenment and so on. So there was a lot of great stuff there, and you can, of course, focus on the negatives, and that's what the devil would want you to do. A lot of great stuff there. But they said, okay, we are cutting off this supply of food, and it is the central and major supply of food to the Western conscience. But you can't cut off a supply of food without providing a new supply of food. Otherwise, everyone's just going to starve to death. And I think that the moral and conscious starvation that's been occurring for the last 100 or 200 years in the West is now kind of reaching its fruition. So I would just say to atheists, man, you got to find God or you got to find conscience, but you can't just leave things the way they are. Yeah, I thought uh, maybe this is the, the, the books that I've steeped myself with, people like Lewis and Dostoevsky, who, who examines this on levels much deeper than almost anybody else I've ever read. But it's the argument that somehow belief is easy, atheism is hard. Now, on the surface, with all those people who are saying to you, it's sophomoric, it's pedestrian. They're basically saying it's not sophisticated. And, and my point is, is that, well, why would virtue be? 
I mean, if there is a God, why would he have created virtue only with sesquipedalian words that only PhDs could understand? Why wouldn't the language of virtue, when you boiled it down, and Screwtape makes this point, why wouldn't it be available to the least educated? I mean, unless God is, by definition, elitist or unjust, all the things the left accuses him of being in, in, in ad hoc, right? Uh, why wouldn't? And I, I go back to the story of Christ, too. If we, if we entertain for a moment the possibility that that creature who walked the earth all those years ago was actually the son of God rather than just a human being, well, look what he did. I mean, it makes perfect moral sense that he talked about humility at the opening of the story. Why, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, and, and Lewis makes this point repeatedly, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he is either the most powerful figure who ever walked the earth, the creator of the universe, enters the world. And, and walks in human form and spends his time teaching, healing, and dying for his own creation, if that's true, notice how he came. The most powerful creature, the one who made the universe, comes as a slave, comes as a bankrupt child, broke in a, a slave state to the Roman Empire. He spends his life in a manger. In a, ma in, in, in in a manger. Livestock. Right. And, and th this, th this is the humility. This is the virtue, right? What is the primary virtue of Christ? It's humility. He comes not as a king or a conqueror, because if he came as a king, a creator, or a conqueror, justice would be all he could meet. There would be really no room for mercy. But he comes as a symbol of humility, that if I can, and this is a reason, if I who created the world can suffer and die for it unjustly, I sacrifice myself for others weaker than me, then there's a great moral argument why we should do the same. And it is a compelling moral arguing. And, and one step further, in terms of the lack of sophistication of this, why would he spend his time talking to the Pharisees? They had made up their mind. The Pharisees of today are the scoffer atheists that you lectured to 10 years ago, right? They don't want to hear you. They have their system. In their system, they are good in their atheist system because they still believe in godless ethics. They may never act on them, and they certainly aren't going to so sa sacrifice their lives for one of the Cretans who believe, but they've given themselves an airtight system of salvation in their own heads. But what Christ did was, to me, stunning in terms of all, and let's assume Christ isn't the Son of God. Of all the great moral teachers in the world, he's, one of the, he's the only one that I've found that's done this. How does he deal with those who are suffering most, the ones for whom the civilization forgot, the lost ones, those who had no recourse, those who were the bottom dwellers, the weakest, the chattel, the kind of, the kind of collective humanity that Stalin would starve to death or that uh, Hitler would gas as useless. He talked to them in their own language. He, he didn't talk down to them. He, everything from Jesus' teaching is rocks and stones and fish and mustard seeds. And so why wouldn't, God or no God, why wouldn't virtue be easily accessible to the lowest IQ as to the highest? And if that's true, if that is true, that virtue is both deeply complicated and yet endlessly simple, that it can be, ex it can be understood at any level of education or experience, then wouldn't by definition in a secular age the highly educated be the most profoundly confused by that? It, why is it not speaking to me here with my lexicon and my thesaurus? Why is it speaking to them? That's always, to me, I have never found an answer to that particular argument that, that compelled me to reject what I believe.
Well, it's how do you get a gold medal at the Olympics? You just run faster than everyone else. Usually, you seen Bolt, right? So that you know, it's it's simple. You start here, you end here. Who crosses the line first gets the gold. So that, but but how you do it? Well, that's how you actually do run faster. That's a whole complicated thing. You've got your diet, you've got your training, you've got your rest days, you've got willpower, you've got tiredness, you've got managing the edge of of injury. I mean, it's a big deal, right? So to me, that's ethics, right? Okay, I just speak the truth uh, and and uh, live consistently and don't inflict moral rules on just one of my big things, right? Don't inflict moral rules on children that you then exempt adults from. And that's the, that's just an exercise of abusive power. That's anything which we expect a five-year-old to do, we can damn well expect a 35-year-old to do. But what happens is we, we give these simple moral rules to kids, you know, don't use violence to get what you want, don't lie, don't steal, respect other people's property, so on, blah, 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 blah. And then when you become an adult, there's all this complicated socioeconomic privilege-based class reasons as to why we have to violently redistribute resources and property in society. And we can point guns at people to get what we want all the time. And it's like, that's not what you said to the five-year-old. What you said to the five-year-old is simple and clear. And I mean, I've done shows on, on how to explain ethics to children, which equally would apply to adults. But what happens is, of course, when we become adults, we become sophisticated enough to mask our simple greed in pretend moral complexity. You know, with, with kids, it's like, hey, just don't take his candy, man, but he's got more candy than me. Then you can ask him for one, but you can't go and take it just because he's got more candy than you. And it's like, he's got more money than, okay, well then go to the government, get a tax this guy and give money to this guy and borrow from this guy. And it's like, you know, that's, uh, you know, if, if your kid borrows five dollars at the mall to to buy something you expect them to pay it back <laughs> i mean it's that otherwise you could give the kid five bucks but the kid says no 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 father i wish to only but borrow this money and i shall return it forthwith uh like the bluto is it bluto and popeye i will gladly pay i will gladly pay Wimpy. you wednesday for a hamburger i can have today right so your kid says i want to borrow five dollars and you say you, you know borrow you're going to pay it back you're going to pay it back Pay it back Saturday. I'll get the money Saturday, right? Saturday comes to say, where's the five bucks? And he says, you know what? I'm going to roll that into a forward-bearing annuity uh, that is going to be an instrument that I'm going to sell, you know, in various countries around the world. And uh, at some point, probably based upon future borrowing, I may get that back to you. But we have to count in inflation. So I'm going to give you about $3.38 at some indefinite point in the future. We'd say, dude, you just ripped me off. You said you were going to borrow. And now you're not paying me back and you're just giving me a bunch of baffle gab. And we, that's what we do with kids, right? But then we go to adults and politicians come to us and say, well, you know, you want a bunch of free stuff. Boomers. No, it's not always boomers. But you want a bunch of free stuff, right? Oh, that's no problem. Let's just borrow it all. Are you ever going to pay it back? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Never, ever, ever going to be paid back. But we can't talk about that. In fact, we can have entire presidential debates that go on for 40 years and nobody's ever going to mention the national debt or how it might be paid off. It becomes Voldemort. It's, debt becomes Voldemort. It's, it can't be spoken, right? And so this be good is actually quite simple. And what's great about this book is, yeah, just be honest. Just reflect upon your virtues and don't become overly self-conscious. I think that's really, really important part of the book, which we should get into, but it's actually quite simple. Now, managing all of that 
is complex. You know, like if you want to lose weight or you want to quit smoking and so on, you know what you have to do. Right? Eat less, exercise more, don't pick up the cigarettes. But dealing with all the reasons why you may be overweight, why you got to change your diet, what emotions are dealing with the food or, you know, what caused you to become a smoker in the first place. Because, you know, smoking in particular is heavily correlated with child abuse, right? So because people who are abused as children, they lack dopamine. And that's one of the things that cigarettes and other drugs give you. So you're not smoking to feel better or you're not taking drugs to feel better. You're taking drugs to feel normal. You take drugs like somebody in chronic pain takes painkillers. So when you stop smoking, all of that repressed child abuse and pain and horror usually floats to the surface. You've got a lot to deal with. So what's great about this book is be good. Yeah, not that complicated, but all the barriers to being good, well, that's complicated and that takes serious reflection. It does. And, you know, I still go back to the original story for me. Uh, where on the hierarchy of learning is learning by example? I would assume that that's pretty high up there. If you can learn by example, you see what works. It's almost empirical, isn't it, right, to learn by example. And the example that Christ set, again, was one of humility. And that to me, why of all the virtues he could have brung to a, a, bro a world in some ways as broken as our own, why is that the virtue he brought? Because I think that's the one virtue that, that you find no corollary for really in nature. That something that is strong doesn't act it. I mean, where do you find that corollary in nature? Uh, we talk about the idea of, of, of God, the, at least the idea of a monotheistic Christian God as being transcendent, not to be found in the system, but have, having to create a system. We're not talking about paganism here. We're talking about a transcendent God who has the universe in his hand, that kind of power. Where do we find in a naturalistic world any, any emphasis whatsoever on the stronger creatures, as Christ says, not just necessarily sacrificing to look after the weak, but to going so far as to give your own life, sacrifice your strength, your existence for its weakness so that it can live if you can't. That's a shocking, that may, that's probably the single most shocking statement that Christianity or possibly world religion ever made. Because again, you can't, the example of Christ was so important. If Christ is just an itiner, it's just some guy who grew up in Galilee, hey, I remember him, went to high school with him, then it, it doesn't mean anything because there's no greatness of power there or privilege. But if he is the creator God, and said that, and then went on to live and then die the way he did. Now that's a powerful example of living by example, and it, it becomes a moral force, force on, it, on its own. And so to me, this idea of, of all the virtues that came, because Screwtape talks about this too. He talks about uh, the humility and what that means and what vanity is. Uh, you're, you're on the verge of something big though. This idea of the amphibian nature of man, that also has to be accounted for. It's not accounted for in our naturalistic philosophy, philosophies, but, but you said, I loved it, that almost, and I, I agree with you, almost nobody in the history of, of philosophy ever explained that better than what Lewis said. And what did Lewis say? Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. Oh, isn't that so beautifully put? I have the best idea in the world, but a stomachache. 
<laughs> oh, I really want to finish this story. Oh, I got to pee. <laughs> right? I mean, our our focus between the incredible abstract conceptions we are capable of and this dragging down beautiful robot flesh prison of the body has almost never been put better. And it's so compressed. It is so compressed and it's a beautiful thing and you know i used to think uh, when i was younger oh mind body dichotomy it's a false dichotomy blah 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 but uh, that's before i really spread my wings and realized what i was capable of and what i'm capable of when i was younger would give me vanity but what i'm capable of now gives me extraordinarily humil extraordinary humility so you know I, I had a conversation with the guy yesterday we were talking about temptations and, and these sort of step-by-step -step things didn't have anything particularly traumatic happen in his youth. And I can talk about this as going out as a show. It's going to be called Dating the Dead. Some people should check it out. I'm talking to this guy. I spent a long time with him. He got addicted to pornography. And he followed these breadcrumbs down this dark path. And long story short, now he ended up as a necrophiliac. Like he wanted romantic uh, interactions with the dead, to put it as nicely as, as humanly possible. And I mean, that's, that's some sort of very dark and, and ugly stuff. And that's sort of this chip by chip things where he's gone fully into the body, where he's actually now sexually attracted to somebody who doesn't even have a consciousness, let alone a life. I mean, that that's how physical it has become. And the way that I was able, and it came as a surprise. He didn't say, oh, by the way, I have this issue. It came up during the course of the conversation. And I was able to sort of navigate it and provide him some real help and, and value through that process. Now, I can look there and say, oh, my gosh, how great am I that I can do that? And it's like, I didn't create that in myself. I didn't create that ability in myself. It's like, like me saying, you know, blue eyes, these blue eyes I decided when I was in that platonic orbit of Saturn before being born. That's really good job, man. Oh, square jaw. You know, that's, that's the fact that I'm above average in height. Great job. You may have missed a little bit with the hair, but good job with everything else. I didn't blueprint myself. I don't own myself in that kind of way. I'm responsible for myself, but I'm the result of whether you want to call it evolution or design is not particularly material, but I did not earn the capacities that I have. Now, I'm responsible for how I use them, but the atheists, the fedora-wearing atheists in general have a lot of vanity about their abilities. And it's like if somebody's born a great singer, because you've got a great singing voice, right? Yeah, good for you, man, but you didn't earn that. Now, how you, what kind of songs you sing, whether you do uplifting Celine Dion anthems or drag down to the muck uh, Billie Eilish Satan fests or something like that, that's another matter. You didn't earn your voice. I didn't earn my looks, my intelligence. Anything. I didn't earn any of that stuff. I mean, I have the responsibility to maintain it and use it for the power of good, but this, if you just stay animal, what happens is you lose connection to all the dominoes that came before you that give you the gifts that you have, even English. I mean, I've tried to invent a couple of words. It's kind of tough. <laughs> it's kind of tough, you know, fetch. It's just not going to happen. And so even the language that we use, the technology that we're using here, I didn't invent it. You didn't invent it. We can use it, I hope, for the best. But humility is saying, I happen to be, I mean, it's privileged in a way, uh, although it's not the, the white privilege stuff, but it's privileged in, I happen to be, the fortunate recipient of good health, of a fairly pleasant speaking voice, of an agile mind and, and all of that. And that gives me humility. Like if you have inherited a whole bunch of money, you're not a great entrepreneur. And you should have the humility to say, okay, I didn't earn it, I just got it. 
So how can I use it for the best? But so many of the people I've known from the atheist world, the secular world, they take this kind of pride, like they earned it all. They, and I'm not saying it's not collectivist in any way, shape or form. It is a humility to say, okay, well, if I have these gifts, I didn't earn them. So it gives me a kind of privilege. How can I best use that in the service of humanity? And this kind of responsibility is really kind of anathema to the sensation-seeking atheists who look upon, and this comes out of the Ayn Rand objectivist world too, they look upon some sort of responsibility or higher calling, like that just makes you a slave. And that to me is a terrible thing, because if you work to sharpen your mind, you work to make good arguments, you work to learn and to educate yourself and to, to gain some sort of deep knowledge, it's like uh, studying the Heimlich maneuver, right? Like you got to cook cough up some piece of fish that's lodged in someone's throat. And then you're in a restaurant, you're having dinner and some guy next to you uh, starts choking on, on a piece of halibut or something. And then you're like, well, I'm not obligated to save his life. I mean, I'm, I, my food's just about to come. I hate my food when it's cold and, you know, my coffee will get cold or my beer will get flat. So no, it's too much hassle. It's like, Okay, nobody's saying that you must and you'll be thrown in jail if you don't, but you can't have a donkey hole if you don't go and help that person because you have all this knowledge. You know how to save that person. They're right there. It's not massively inconvenient to you. Nobody's asking you to give a kidney, uh, you know, using a salad fork. And so just go, go help that person rather than saying, oh, I have this knowledge of the Heinrich maneuver. That makes me very special. It's like, well, I don't know if it does or it doesn't, but you sure as hell aren't special if you don't go and help the guy choking on the piece of halibut. And so... What is wonderful about this book and this phrase that there is something eternal about us for the atheists out there, just think of it as four billion years of evolution that happened to give you this great brain and this relative health and, you know, this relatively free society and this great technology in the here and now, you know, that's all, all wonderful. You know, I've had 700 million plus views and downloads of my philosophy show. Is that because I'm the, I'm, I'm the most downloaded philosopher probably in history. I've had 10 million books downloaded and, and all of that. Does that mean I'm the best? No, it just, I'm lucky. Ooh, I, I drew the straw, which is birth of the internet. I had this wonderful 10 years from 2006 to 2016 where you actually could speak your mind and the powers that be would more or less leave you alone. It was 10 years out of the entire history of man. It doesn't seem like a lot, but you know, it's 10 years that nobody else had. So yay, you know, good for that. And that humility is something that does not tend to arise you know, because Christians say, I've been given the gift of life, I've been given the gift of a soul, I've been given the gift of free will, how am I going to use it to serve virtue? And there's not a lot of atheists who have that same drive. I think you could say, I've always thought this, that the unreflexive atheists and many of the reflexive ones are starting from a position that eliminates the possibility of humility. To whom are you humble to if, again, you are self-created? If you, know, you, you could give, do you give thanks to the silent, uh, non-sentient task of four billion years of evolution? That, that, that doesn't seem to do it, right? It's not very Nietzschean, right, to give, to give the paramecium, the, all, those, all those links in the chain. We, I've never known an atheist to go back to the Museum of Natural History and, and thank that whale bone, that, be, that bear bone that eventually became a whale. There's no, but, but by definition, you have created, you are, you've entered a world where you are more or less self-created. You are, uh, like everybody else, you're born, into, you're born from slime, but you've made something of your slime and the fact that yeah, other people you've have won, sorry to interrupt but you've you've won the lottery right. of all life That's to right. be a human being is to win the lottery of all life and you didn't even buy the lottery ticket it was just handed to you by fate and you're like so you just 
a, a lottery ticket blows into your face and you cash it in for like half a billion dollars and you don't feel any gratitude. You don't feel like, wow, boy, talk about found money. That's more than the 20 bucks I found doing laundry last week. I got to do something good with this money. Can't really earn it. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're right. And the we, you talked about the law of, of, of undulation, this idea. The, one of the very first stories, in fact, the very first story you get in the, the screw tape letters is the uh, is Worm uh, screw tape lecturing his nephew again. Let me tell you something, he says, Wormwood. Once when I had a patient just like yours, a young man who was a comfortable atheist, well, he used to like to read in the British Library, and he'd go every morning and read for three hours, and I was on his shoulder because I paid very close attention to what he read, and I noticed that he was beginning to read things that were intellectually moving, moving him back toward God, toward the enemy. I knew I had to act fast. So I didn't try to argue with him. I didn't try to unargue God because, and this blew me away. And you must remember, Wormwood, God, in, if God exists, God invented reason. He can reason too. We didn't invent it, he did. All we can do is take what he made rationally and unmake it. You mentioned the quote before, right? All, the all this time, we devils have tried to create one virtue just to say we could do it and we haven't been able to. All we can do is unmake the virtues that are. So this man reading, this young man reading in the British Museum, he was getting dangerously close to belief. The last thing in the world I was going to do was argue with him. The last thing I was going to do is put an idea in his head. I simply said, it's lunchtime. A, a little rumble in the belly. And I just whispered in his ear, this is a really important decision. Maybe too busy, too important to make while you're hungry. Go, go get a sandwich and come back. <laughs> right. And so he, the minute he, 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 he perked up immediately, he gathered his books and walked out. And you know what? Wormwood, he never back, came back to that library again. Because once he got into the street and he heard the bus go by and saw the young boy screaming, paper, paper, 50 cents, he was embarrassed that in the quiet of his reading, his mind was going towards something as ridiculous as God. All I did, had to do was get him out into the street with its scents and smells and animal behaviors, and I knew he was safe from God. Mm. And there's a real bait and switch with the quasi-scientific atheists who say, well, you see, but the physical evidence for the existence of God just doesn't add up to the kind of physical evidence that exists for the theory of gravity or trees or, or I'm an empiricist and I believe in truth, facts, reason, science, evidence, blah, blah, blah. And it's actually pretty easy to reveal that modern science-addicted atheism is actually far more of an anti-rational cult than even the worst aspects of Christianity. There's a couple of topics you could bring up that's just going to make them freak out, and you can sort of point out, uh, oh, you know, race is not just a social construct, there are biological differences. No! <laughs> oh, do you know that uh, men and women's brain sizes are different and there are IQ spreads? No! <laughs> it's a fact! Uh, you know that there's good reasons to be skeptical of the Thermageddon view of climate change, that, you know, having more plant food in the atmosphere at a time of rising human population, thus facilitating the greater growth of agriculture, may not be quite as a disaster as... No! Right? Uh, do you know that the California forest fires are more related to arson than they are to climate change? Because magically they stop at the Canadian border, whereas I don't think Canadian, I don't think climate change. No, right? You don't hear about anything about this stuff. Do you know that um, there are some scientific studies that show masks may not be as effective as uh, people think, and the mortality rate is kind of low for COVID, and uh, oh yeah, there's significant evidence that this was man-made, probably in the Wuhan lab, that it mysteriously emerged a couple hundred yards. No, right? So all of this, well, you you know, we just, we just, you know, we gotta, what we are humble to, what we are humble to, say the atheists, is we're humble to science. 
where we will bow down before science. But no, you that, won't. But that's a lie, like you just said. And I'll tell you, and yeah. you know the reason why. Because if the scientist is honest, his an- the only honest answer to the question is, give me some data, or else I can't address the issue. Right? At least not with my scientific toolkit. Right? I mean, and we know, and every scientist I've met knows that there are aspects to the human condition that are not database. They are not empirical. There are aspects of the human animal and his, his uh, amphibian self. I love that again, right? One foot in the human world, one foot in the, the angelic world. That we all concede that there is an illogic to humanity that defies scientific description. Uh, why is it that if, re- if there is no God, and I think this is a fair statement, if there is no God and nothing transcendent, no heaven, no hell, then as far as we know, human reason is the most powerful force in the universe. It's to the degree that we've been able to look, we've found nothing like human reason. Immediately, this is, this is where humility goes to die, right? If there is no God and we have comfortably decided, not because we've empirically proven he doesn't exist, we've just decided he doesn't exist. And as scientists, we're not gonna acknowledge the fact that if this kind of a God were to exist, numbers and physics weren't gonna get the job done anyway. He's a non-material, Christ, Christ himself and his simplicity said the Father is spirit. What are you looking for? It's like somebody wants to go out and swab a cloud with a 50-foot-tall 50 50 Q-tip and grow God spores in a Petri dish before you're going to concede he exists. I mean, Christ, Christ made the observation, God is spirit. And so consequently, there is nothing in your laboratories that would measure this. And so the idea here that, you know, from the perspective of what the screw tape letters are telling us is there are, there are aspects of humanity. Now, something as simple as, I'll get one aspect is sacrificial love of which Christ modeled. Why does the strong? In nature, the, the shark never sacrifices itself so the tuna can live. The gazelle, the, the lion never lays down and feeds, let himself be fed upon by the other lions to save the gazelles. It doesn't happen. There's nowhere that it happens. And there is no logical, material reason why it would ever happen. In fact, it's the, ant, it's the definition of that would be the evolution in reverse. It would be to take what we believe to be the sole origin for life on this planet and insist that it had to work backwards, right? Every strong thing giving way to the weak, right? And weaker and weaker till life died out. That's what we would have to believe. And so this is the, the power of what I think he's telling you is, is, the, is the humility there to recognize that, because I, I asked my sophomores this just the other day, how many of you believe that we are just nothing more than highly evolved animals. And about 80% of the class raised their hands. Okay? I said, so therefore, reason, I said, so we're reading a story about sacrifice. I said, so, so what, is, is this character in the story who willingly laid down his life to save the life of uh, this individual as an individual who was mentally retarded, uh, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing? And they all said it was great. So you don't believe in, in anything but materialism, you just said that, and yet you find this act, this very implausible act of sacrifice to be noble. How do you square that circle? How do you, <laughs> because the smart person says you can't, right? You have two radically, conti- and reason, reason is not enough. Reason does not, reason doesn't answer the question. Something else has to answer the question. It's not a rational thing to do. And that's why I think so many of the great writers of the 20th century, including a lot of left-wingers, have written books warning us about what happens when the only thing we allow to process truth is reason. 
right? Is it my mistake or are all the great dystopias of the 20th century, they're warnings not against faith. They're warnings against a far too rigid rationalism. Well, I would sort of argue as well that they're warnings against the absolutist rejection of suffering. Because Christianity, of course, absorbs and utilizes for good our propensity towards suffering. And suffering is quite a lot talked about in, uh, in the screw tape letters, right? Because, because under atheism, well, why would you suffer? So sacrifice and, and suffering doesn't really help. Now, of course, in Christianity, um, you know, say, why is God making me suffer? It's like, well, if you've morally transgressed, it's not God, it's you who's making yourself suffer. And it is important to have people serve as a warning to others, right? So, I mean, take a sort of example of like single motherhood, right? So some woman gets pregnant uh, in a Christian society, you know, that's bad. It's bad for the kid. Uh, it's bad for the woman. It's bad for the family as a whole. And the idea that you would rush in and give her $5,000 a month, every child she has would be kind of like, well, no, no, that's, that's not giving her free will anymore. And it's actually diminishing the free will of other women who are now going to be bribed into behaving badly by getting free government money or whatever it is, a charity would be pretty harsh about that stuff. And so people are going to suffer. And one of the most amazing things, which I very vividly remember reading this book in my 20s, was when he said, okay, if you really want to, I'm paraphrasing, of course, he says, you really want to resent your life? Pretty easy. You wake up thinking the next 24 hours completely and totally just belong to you. You should be able to do whatever you want. And then you resent every single obligation that you have that interferes with your universal ownership of your own time and efforts and energy. That is a perfect way to end up resenting life. Or, you know, wake up thinking that you should never have a headache. You should never stub your toe. You should never get a stomachache. You should never get stuck in traffic. You should never forget your wallet. Like these things should never, life standards should be perfection. And a complete absence of annoyance, irritation, setbacks, blowbacks, blah, 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 right? And that way, everything that deviates from this imaginary perfect state, heaven on earth, everything which deviates from that will be magnified a hundredfold because you don't anticipate it or expect it, right? It's like the people who show up. I remember this happened once in a business meeting way before 9-11. Well, I was in a business meeting and really in an intense negotiation, lost track of time, and I had half an hour to catch a flight of which 10 minutes was getting to the airport. Now, you try that these days, you can't do it, right? And I made it, you know, like, hold that play, <laughs> sprinting down, you know, bags flying all over the place and all of that. And uh, I, would, I would never show up thinking, well, everything's going to go perfectly. There'll never be any lie. We all expect there to be problems and issues and difficulties, right? Our show started late. There was some technical issues. I, I had something else come up. I couldn't finish the book in the way that I wanted, make all my notes. So, you know, we started a little late. It's fine. It's part of life, right? And so this idea that life should somehow be absent of suffering and then every single impediment is just an ever-escalating tsunami-like annoyance to the sandcastle of perfection that life always knocks over is, drives people crazy. And uh, let me just get the quote here, which was really great. Um, he says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned with his own dignity and advancement where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance and resentment or election year 2020 or every other year that is going on these days. And because Christianity says, yeah, it's kind of a veil of tears. It's kind of corrupt environment. You're going to suffer. 
I mean, the, the, the very center of Christianity got nailed to a cross. I mean, that's a pretty bad day by any standard, right? And so understanding that virtue is going to bring suffering. To be good in a corrupt world is going to cause blowback. It's go and, and knowing that. See, to me, you don't have courage if you just rush in where you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. If I grew up Christian and I was very much aware and was very much taught that, yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the wages of virtue is deplatforming, <laughs> whatever, they didn't say that at the time, right? But if you're going to tell the truth that's going to upset people, and it's an essential truth, and it's important, it's a moral truth, if you speak these truths and you're going to get blowback, that is in the nature. And, and that to me is where the moral courage comes from, knowing, you know, it's one thing to run into a building to save someone who's trapped under a fridge, or it's another thing if the building is hugely on fire, <laughs> then you know that there's much more of a negative situation. And I think because atheists have this fantasy of a perfect world, which is really what communism goes for, because they say, well, you see, there's no physical evidence for the existence of God. But the next time we try communism, it's going to work out perfectly. It's like, oh my gosh in heaven, are you kidding me? You, give, you, you claim to be an empiricist, and you say, well, empirical evidence of God is sadly lacking in the universe. It's like, you show me the empirical evidence of communism working, but you're going to try it again, and it's much more destructive than anything you can imagine. So trying to eliminate suffering creates the most suffering. And this distraction element within the screw tape letters is trying to eliminate challenging questions. Or as you, the guy who was reading in the, in the uh, I always think of uh, Karl Marx reading in the British Library uh, uh, every day. This guy didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to take seriously the moral duties he was contemplating. He did not want to suffer. So you avoid suffering. Taking that to an extreme, you get the paradise promise, the heaven on earth promise of the national socialists, the communists, the socialists to say, hey man, we can eliminate suffering. We can make everyone equal. No one's going to envy everyone, uh, anyone. And we can make uh, women uh, perfectly economically equal to men. Plus, they can still have kids, which is kind of one or the other. There aren't going to be any false dichotomies. There aren't going to be any tough choices to make. Like people say, oh, well, we'll just get rid of COVID by uh, keeping everyone locked down, shutting down all the businesses and making everyone wear masks. And it's like, okay, well, now we have no economy. And we've got to keep the old people safe from COVID. It's like, well, by destroying the economy so we can't pay them a retirement pension or give them any health care anymore. I don't really think it's this idea that you can have a universe where the Aristotelian logic, that the basic three laws of logic don't apply. It's a, it's a psychotic, insane, narcissistic, deranged, megalomaniacal universe. There aren't going to be any tough choices whereas Christianity starts, yes, everything is tough because you're an amphibian. And you're never going to have one foot in one, one foot. You're going to weave between these two. You're going to have your bodily pleasures, which are important, and you're going to have your spiritual desires. And virtue is going to set you at conflict with the world. But if you refrain from enacting virtue in the world, you're going to be set a conflict against yourself, which is even worse, and it's better to have a good conscience and a bad reputation and an evil world. All of this stuff, it's like, welcome to the Vale of Tears, your big ticket to a lifelong suffering journey of glory. Whereas this devil hangs out this thing, which is like, hey man, just surrender your will and your identity to the collective, and it'll just be paradise. It's basically going to hook you up to a big, giant graduate school amniotic sack of government money and you're going to get fed through a tube through your belly like you're in the early part of the matrix and you're never going to have to suffer and we're really tempted by that and Christianity just smacks that delusion out of people's minds and says no 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 the suffering is real the suffering is important and the attempt to escape it 
is the essence of self-destructive addiction. Yeah, I think suffering is the key to this question, and it's the, it's the question that the left, the progressive left, atheist left, doesn't really want to tackle, because we've been living in a largely, uh, increasingly God-free Western world for 100 years now. More, with every decade that goes on, it becomes less relevant. And pain hasn't gone away. Where is the same railing against nature? Where is the same uh, heartbroken, almost childlike striking out at Mother Nature for creating a universe where suffering is really the hallmark of everything we do? And I mean everything we do. I mean, when, what, what's the only way we can build muscles to shred the old muscle? Growing, simply the, act, the physical act of growing involves growing pains. The joints ache, right? I mean, you, you, every meaningful intellectual thing we do comes by a kind of suffer. Turn off the TV, put your cell phone down. It's eff- it takes effort, right? Effort that my college kids are now completely unable to make to tune out the noise to try to focus. So pain, and pain comes in all different measurable sizes, but pain is the purpose of this universe, especially if there is no God. In fact, it is perhaps the one predictable, unavoidable, universal thing of the universe. If you, if you flew here from Mars, right, and you just took one look at this planet, the first thing you would notice is every damn thing is eating every other damn thing. And the, 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 the pain that arrived, this whole world suffers. And you've gotten rid of God already. The only thing, the only thing in down through history that has given us meaningful philosophical understandings of the purpose of that pain. Because the modern scientific answer is it needs to be done away with. We have to keep, and, and we, we get more and more a- analgesics, we get more and more uh, soporifics, we get more and more opiates, we get find more and more ways to numb and deaden. Antidepressants. Uh, yeah, we, to, and, and what are they doing? They're literally deadening. They are worse than the pain. And one of the great lessons of the 20th century dystopia, too, is, and Dostoevsky made this point, if you, put, if you gave a person a completely pain-free life, they would start cutting themselves immediately. Right. That 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 at some point, the the desire to feel pain is part and parcel of what makes us human. Why do so if rationality is all there is? Why, after all of this time of preaching that to us, why do four out of five times grown up adult smart people like me choose the irrational thing? I mean, how often every day, and what kind of a world would it be if you only chose the rational thing? I mean, and what kind of a, a, a Vulcan pr- prison house would you put yourself in? And so I, what I get is I get why hurt feelings, right? If God exists, if there's a, God, there's a daddy in the sky, why is he letting me suffer? I could get that on a visceral level. But in removing God, uh, and the screw tape letter sort of, screw tape hints at this, why aren't they raging the same? Why are they comfortable suffering if it's a natural thing? And, uh, and the answer to that, I think screw tape says, is because... If there is no meaning to pain or no morality to it, then suffering in a godless world means that you can fill that hole with anything and not feel guilty about it. It goes back to the opening gambit of the story, right? That we, we have empowered ourselves now, drugs, alcohol, sex. Uh, there are all these great moral prohibitions for, against them. And one of, the, one of the reasons why is they did serve 
to some degree as an, topical analgesics to sort of separate us for our pain a little bit for a short while. And, and I think the psychology of being, a, of a, a, being a, a biped, right? A creature that is on some level something more than human, something, uh, something not just an animal. I think that's the problem. And I think the only way you connect with that, to understand that, to nurture that side of you, to make sense of those aspects of you, can only be framed through pain. And what pain, mm. if you are able, if you're humble enough to accept and turn that pain into something productive, what do we get? We get tragedy in the theater, right? We get the, the, the exculpatory tragedy, right? That suffer. We recognize in so many other walks of life that the, there's entertainment in watching people suffer and come through it, right? It's, it's the master narrative of, West, of world culture, the hero. For thousands and thousands of years, what was the hero? He or she who came to through tremendous personal and collective suffering to find something redemptive beyond it. I mean, it's, it's, it's as primordial as the earliest human being's consciousness, right? The earliest dawning consciousness, consciousness of man was tied up in those ideas too. How we've wandered so far away, and it's, it's not even just critic. What's the first law of the Buddha? Right? Life is suffering, and you can't have nirvana. You can't even begin the path to, you, to nirvana until you recognize, number one, suffering is the—what's the, the, uh, the, 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 what I'm looking for? I'm looking for the exact right word, and it's, I probably don't need it. Suffering is the currency that you have to pay in this world to get beyond suffering, because without it, you would never try. I mean, animals— as I said to my sophomores, when I had that question about why, sh you're, so 80% of you don't believe in God or any, any kind of transcendent morality. As one kid wisely put it, relative, morality is completely relative, he said, okay? And yet you see this act of, incredible act of strength bowing reverently before suffering, giving itself up for the suffering weak. And they all applauded it. I said, how do you... Well, all you have to do, if, if, if morality is completely subjective, then say you have no grounds to condemn the racist. Then, right? That's true. Oh, no, 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 that's why you can totally do that. <laughs> it's like, no, when they say morality is relative, they mean that my irrational absolutes wish to retain the patina of morality. I mm -hmm. wish to elevate my emotions to a universal moral standard because I don't want to deal with the humility of having to reason through my feelings. So. Right, and that means if you're Antifa, you are by definition fighting fascism, so nothing's off the table. So you're justified, right? We go back to where we started with that too. That's where some of these people, are, again, on the atheist left, they make those assumptions that I'm allowed, if, you, if I think you hate some, I, I, I'm against hate. I dedicate my life to fighting hate. And if I find that you hate green beans even, I will rail against you for your intolerance. And suddenly my hating you becomes justified. I mean, so you, the, 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 the kinds of intellectual back alley, dead end alleys that these, these secular philosophies lead you to. Uh, oh, and this, sorry to interrupt, but this is what drives me so nuts with this stuff, this relativism and postmodernism, is that it takes the virtue and value of humanity and turns it to utterly destructive ends. Look, the lion is going to eat you, but he's not going to lecture you. Right. I mean, the, the lion doesn't sit there and say, well, I'm going to put you in the category of white supremacist and that's why I'm eating you and you should feel bad. And like, he's just like, hey, I'm hungry. You look fleshy. I'm in. Right. That's the deal. Right. So it's taking this capacity we have to universalize and moralize and simply turning it to, you know, cold eyed, absolute destructive hatred. And that to me is the worst aspect 
of it is that uh, they are accepting that we are more than material. They are accepting that we participate in the universal. And yet at the same time, they are merely animating fleshly lusts of hatred and, and so on, um, and animating that and then spreading it up across the sky as some sort of moral imperative. And that's why it's such an unreformable cult, right? Because, because they have taken their emotions and turned them into moral absolutes, and they can't handle the suffering of having that questioned. And you see this, I'm sure, as a professor all the time, you know, all these trigger warnings and these rooms where, oh, my gosh, a conservative speaker is speaking somewhere on the campus. Here's your room where there's going to be videos of puppies and there's going to be beanbags and there's going to be volunteers there to give you hugs and so on. Well, how did we become so weak? We, came, we became so weak because we view challenge to our preconceptions, which is the mark of a healthy mind, to be challenged. We view challenges to our preconceptions, really exposure of our programming, to be the undoing of our personalities. But to me, anything that's shaky, you know, you, you buy a house, you think it's strong, it turns out to be really, really shaky, you just knock it down and start again. Any, quote, personality structure which cannot handle opposition is something that needs to be rebuilt from the ground up in a stronger, it's the old thing on, in the Bible, it's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, build your house on rock, not on sand. And all this postmodernism, this relativism, this subjectivism, it's fine, okay, then fine. Okay, so if you genuinely believe that, you should never correct another human being. You should never have a moral opinion. You should never care who to vote for. You should never care about any political parties. You should never care about any moral questions at all because you don't believe in these things in the same way that, you know, you and I don't get involved in ferocious debates about Zeus versus Hades and who's got the, well, whatever. I mean, I, I guess we could, but it wouldn't be because we believe these things exist. They'd just be useful metaphors. But uh, what happens is they say there's no such thing as truth there's no such thing as virtue, but I can identify you as X, Y, Z negative, and therefore I have the right to attack you. It's like, no, no, no. If there's no such thing as truth or virtue, live with the consequence. No, no, I don't want to live with the consequences of that. I just want to uncork my demonic passions and call them virtue because otherwise I have to look in the mirror and see a devil instead of a pretend angel. If there's one thing I've learned from my study of history, you know, and, and from studying the Screwtape letters, letters, which make this point again as well, is that with the, with the re, uh, retiring of God, with the slow movement away from, the, not, even, not even whether God exists or not, just the possibility that God exists, the more you wander away from that, the more the, more the possibility of free will and choice goes away too. And so why is it that I'm, you had some pretty rep repressive regimes down through history, but somehow Western culture managed to move forward, even with inquisitions, even with uh, the, the, the horrible uh, empires that grew. But it's, when you look at the history of the last 150 years, say from the time, 170 years, from the times of Marx and the kind of uh, ideas he was putting forth, what we see is, by definition, you couldn't have had socialism, you couldn't have had Marxism, you couldn't have had the kind of fascism we saw in the 20th century until you actually argued cognitively there was no God. That because if there is no God, then why shouldn't we herd people like cattle rather than serve them like Christ did? And so when you think about that, uh, and I see it in my students' attitudes too, free will, and we see it culturally, uh, Free will. We can't. We can't. And you, you sort of, you made the same argument from a different, a different street. You came in in a different alley. It's the idea that we don't. Um, if we, if we don't, if we aren't free in the sense that we have some kind of a higher sense of what human life is, 
then life becomes really cheap really quick because there's no answer to this. There's no other answer. So why do we get these deeply censorious movements like socialism? What you, what you just chronicled, right? You can't say that if it hurts my feelings. You're not allowed to think that way, uh, that there's only certain ways that these things, this, this radical shutting down of free will. And then you got the sciences coming in over the last hundred years and suggesting more and more of what we are is predictable. We're, the moment the sperm hits egg, we're, if we're happy people or sad people, if we're generous people, it has nothing to do with choice. It's just the way we were manufactured uh, in terms of processed. And so what, you, what I see is the, the growing tendency to remove God and then to remove free will as a possibility. And my kids begin to see that because I have never yet met somebody, even the greatest one of my students who is a moral relativist, who would go so far as to say that they didn't have some degree of personal choice in their life, that they recognize even the, the most sold out to that worldview, that they do indeed and could be held responsible for things that they choose. Hmm. Well, if you can't control yourself, you can't manage yourself, you must inevitably end up controlling others. In other words, if something offends you, you have to deal with that as an adult. Things offend me all the time, but you just have to deal with that as an adult. But if you can't find a way to manage yourself, you end up having to control the offender by labeling them ever escalating negative terms and then eventually removing them from the public square. And so uh, self-control, maturity, uh, is essential to a free society, which is why it's not taught anymore. You're not taught, oh, that upsets you. It's not the fault of the person who's saying something. I mean, there's a whole concept of hate speech that somehow something that upsets you is full of a negative emotion and must be suppressed. It's like, well, no, you're full of a negative emotion and that emotion is called fear. And you're trying to control your fear by controlling other people. But every time you act to control the negative emotion, you're simply reinforcing its power over you. And that's why these things tend to ever escalate and they never stop and they end either in breaking through to freedom or collapsing into tyranny. And until we can teach young people that you are responsible for your own emotional content, other people are not responsible for keeping you content and happy and unconcerned with words around you because that's fundamentally tyrannical. And if we give in, as we are increasingly as a society, give in to people's upset, we are simply reinforcing that cry-bullying works and we're going to all lose out from there. You know, at the end of the book, the end of the screw tape letters, as we wind this around to the end, screw tape and Wormwood lose the patient. He ends up going, he, going to heaven, not to hell when he dies. He ends up having chosen correctly. And the, one of the final messages of the screw tape letters is, is without that kind of humble sacrifice, that, that sacrificial kind of love, love, the love, the, the, the behavior of the devils, as uh, screw tape defined it, was purely animalistic. We eat. We're predators and you're prey. I asked my kids, at the, at, always in the university too, when we have these conversations, I said, okay, according to you, there are wolves and sheep. I said, so raise your hand if you have to be one of them. How many of you would choose to be sheep? And no one raises their hand. And I immediately, I did, it, I did it two days ago. I said, well, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of you all. You clearly aren't social justice warriors. And they were offended. What do you mean we don't care about social justice? Well, look what you just did. You said, you, you agreed with me that there were wolves and sheep, and you instinctively chose to be a wolf. Why? And their answer was, because I would rather eat than be eaten. I said, so where's your, so, what are your social justice bona fides? And with the screw tape, and they were puzzled. They got it. They got it, but they were puzzled, right? So I said, so either 
you either you are you are a sheep, right? Or you should associate with the sheep because you don't believe that everything is prey and, pre and predator and prey. Or you better rethink what your worldview is. And at the end of the screw tape letters, we get this message basically: that what seems to the to the world as weakness is strength. And I guess that's the that's the last philosophical question I want to ask you about this book. The, and we've heard this down through history. The, Nietzsche made this point, right? He called Christianity conscience vivisection, right? Just a bunch of people sitting down and, and, and agonizing, vivisecting their own consciences, trying to find reasons to feel bad for what they want and desire. That's what Nietzsche said Christianity was. In fact, he said that about Dostoevsky. He read Dostoevsky's novels, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, and he said, this is the problem with Christianity. 2,000 years of conscience, vis uh, conscience vivisection. However, Nietzsche said, I will admit this, that Dostoevsky is the only psychologist from whom I have anything to learn. How can you have both of those statements be true? And is it, Steph, this is the question, what the secular world sees as weakness, strength bowing to weakness, strong giving way to, to weak, uh, those that can take allowing to be taken from, that scene is weak, right? They'll be speaking of the concern trolls and the questions, right? Christianity is weak, right? We need, we need to, a, a philosophy that's bold and willing to take what's necessary. How do, we, how, how do you, as you walk away from that, how do, you, how do we address the question? To me, it only can be addressed if there is something beyond the world. If there is world, then, then weakness is never good. But if there is some place we're trying to get to, then not only does it make sense, but it, it strikes me as the highest kind of moral thinking I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, the question of social ethics or political ethics comes down to the question of what is higher than power. 